according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Once again, we are returning to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 63. We concluded uh, the 12 verses of Isaiah 62 last week and didn't go too far over, I don't think, in time. Today, I just don't know what to do. I've been praying about today for a long, long time. There's a lot in this chapter, and uh, I'm convinced that it's going to be a total train wreck. So I'm going to open us up with a word of prayer, and on a faith basis, I'm going to ask the Father to be faithful, because my humanity does not see how to do this chapter in, in one week. So we'll see what the Lord wants to do with it. Shall we pray? Father, I do thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have to assemble together. And I rejoice, Father, in all of the dimensions of your truth, the length and width and height and depth. I thank you for our Galatians series, Father, that we spend the time and slow down and plunge to the depths. I thank you for our uh, Proverbs series, Father, in which we ascend to the heights. And I thank you, Father, for Isaiah and Jeremiah, the present study that we're in, where length and width are on full display, the panorama of your truth chapter by chapter, week by week. We're getting a big picture today, Father. And as much as we would like to slow down and plunge into the details, we understand this is not the time for that. There will come a time, Lord willing and rapture pending, that we will stop and we will uh, detail every ounce of meat that can be found in, in this chapter and throughout this book. But Father, not on this day. On this day, we'll get the big picture for what it is and thank you for the feeding that you provide for us. I do thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we get to go to war. Our Savior goes to war, and we watch the bloody aftermath of that war as he comes forth. Who is this who comes from Edom with garments of glowing colors from Basra? This one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads the winepress? I have trodden the wine trough alone, and from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath, and their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments, and I stained all my raiment. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption has come. I looked and there was no one to help, and I was astonished and there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought salvation to me, and my wrath upheld me. I trod down the peoples in my anger and made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. All right, there's our first six verses of Isaiah 63. Uh, We're going to handle that as a unit before we move on and cover these next uh, sections, verses 7 and following, and see as we can get down through verse 19. But the context of this is clearly tribulational. Obviously, this is the time of unparalleled warfare upon the earth as Jesus Christ brings to an end all of the satanic opposition against him personally and every attempt to exterminate the Jewish people nationally. This is the uh, description of the Battle of Armageddon. 
or what is better referred to as the campaign of Armageddon, more than a single battle, a long series of of engagements, and we're going to uh, handle that as well. I'll give you some reading to do if you want to pursue it in more detail. But understand, Israel will only receive millennial peace when the Lord Jesus Christ achieves the greatest military victory in history. Peace comes through military victory. And they can visualize world peace all they want, and they can put bumper stickers in every car they can find, but world peace is not going to come about by simply visualizing it or wanting it to happen or compromising with the liar that makes all the promises he makes for world peace. He's a liar from the beginning, and he continues to lie. Peace comes as the adversary is defeated. And this, of course, we understand is the culmination of the tribulation of Israel, the conclusion to that great tribulation, which is the greatest warfare this planet has ever seen. In these verses, we actually have the second reference to Basra, the second reference to the conqueror. We had an earlier glimpse of him, a shorter glimpse, back in chapter 34. I'm going to grab that here just quickly. Isaiah 34, verses 5 and 6, you might recall. Uh, because it was not only an earthly scene, but it was also a heavenly scene, whereby the hosts of heaven were wearing away, and the, sc- and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll. All their hosts will also wither away, and uh, as a leaf withers from the vine, or as one withers from the fig tree. For my sword is satiated in heaven. Behold, it shall descend for judgment upon Edom. That's the same land we're looking at here this morning in chapter 63. It's the Edomite territory in which Basra is located. It shall descend for judgment upon Edom and upon the people whom I have devoted to destruction. The sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It is sated with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra and a great slaughter in the land of Edom. And it goes on as a chapter that details this. Uh, we have uh, the day of vengeance in verse 8, the recompense for the cause of Zion also in verse 8, pelicans and hedgehogs and a lot of other demonic terminology there in, in that chapter. And so you may go back and review those notes from chapter 34, but we'll see it's complemented very well here in Isaiah chapter 63. We're talking about the war to end all wars, all right, as God himself describes it. We're not talking about historically how they referenced World War I in their uh, satanic wishful thinking, all right? Uh, it was, World War I was not the war to end all wars. World War II was worse. And I believe the unfolding World War III that we see before us against uh, the Islamic uh, Caliphate is, uh, is going to be worse even than World War II. Do I believe that? I do believe that, all right, as uh, far as where that goes. That's a sermon for a different day. Let me stay on track. Armageddon is going to make all of those other things pale away to even insignificance when it comes right down to it. The Bible in Revelation calls it the war of the great day of God the Almighty. And I think that's a better title for the war as opposed to Armageddon. Armageddon is a staging area. Armageddon is is an opening gambit as far as the adversary goes. As Antichrist gathers all the human and demonic forces he can at that valley, at the, uh, uh, the Megiddo location there. 
Um, but that's waiting for the Christ to come so they can engage in battle. And the battle takes place in a variety of places, including Jerusalem, including uh, Megiddo, including the Mount of Olives, including what we're looking at today, the campaign that takes it across to the territory of Edom, territory that's preserved against Antichrist so that it can be a place of refuge for the Jewish people. Now, Revelation 16:14 is where we get the full title. And I'm going to work hard to reference it as this from now on, as opposed to the War of Armageddon or the Battle of Armageddon or the cam- even the campaign of Armageddon is a bit misleading. Revelation 16 and verse 14 gives us this title. And uh, as far as the spirits are concerned, coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. That's the title. And uh, they are gathered together and where they assemble, their rallying point uh, for logistical uh, gathering is in verse 16, they gather them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Har, which is mountain, Har Megiddo in the Old Testament known as Megiddo in uh, where many of the Old Testament battles took place in the Valley of Jezreel or uh, Esdrelion. There's different labels for it depending on which testament or which language you're reading from. So the war of the great day of God the Almighty, sometimes referred to as the Armageddon campaign, uh, will include staging areas, maneuvers, and engagements at Megiddo, Jezreel, Esdrelion, Jerusalem, Babylon, Basra, the Valley of Jehoshaphat, and as well as, of course, the Mount of Olives. Mount Olivet, where Jesus Christ ascended from, where Jesus Christ will return to. Promised in Zechariah 14, promised in Acts chapter 1, and other passages there. I do recommend uh, Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum. I don't uh, 100% agree with his uh, sequence of events. I think there's some fine-tuning and some tweaking that needs to be done. But I don't know of anyone, including R.B. Theme. That who, who wrote a, a wonderful work on Armageddon, on that campaign, but I think Fruchtenbaum exceeded that in its detail and in its scope, synthesizing Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Zechariah, Hosea, Micah. Uh, he didn't duck any of the minor prophets, all right, plus Jesus Christ in the Olivet Discourse, uh, Matthew 24, Matthew 25, all right, along with the book of Revelation, chapters 6 through 19. And you need to synthesize all of that in order to create a harmonic sequence of events and anytime you do that it's available for tweaking and interpretation because there is no passage in the bible that does this harmonization for us all right there's no uh, text in revelation by the way that tells us how to connect isaiah's basra passage with uh zechariah's mount olives uh, passage for example And so when he does take his stand on the Mount of Olives, when the mountain does split north and south, when a great valley is formed, is that before the Basra engagement? Is that after the Basra engagement? Are his robes dipped in blood yet or not yet? All right. And so do we place Basra before or after the fall of Jerusalem? Jerusalem does fall, by the way. So do we place Basra before that or after that? How do we handle the Valley of, of uh, Judgment, the Valley of Jehoshaphat? At what stage do we put these in, in, in what order do we put these in? 
because the, the synthesis of all the Old Testament prophets is, uh, is a work of our part in rightly dividing the word of truth and studying to show ourselves approved. But there is no book of the canon of Scripture that gives us the precise sequence or the precise order. And uh, so there's room for that. Uh, if you do get uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum's work, it is in his collection of Messianic Bible studies, and it is Bible study number four in all the, the lengthy collection of the Messianic Bible studies by, uh, by Arnold Fruchtenbaum. All right. And by the way, if you're going to do a study like this, get some maps. <laughs> all right. Get some maps. Look at the geography. Look at the territory. Try to visualize where these things are. Understand how Megiddo is to the north and Edom is to the southeast. And where is all of it? Just east of, east of Jerusalem. And what is that valley that runs in between? There are going to be significant venues for these uh, for these engagements. And this is where I want to spend the entire hour. Putting maps up there, showing you pictures in 3D. And we just can't do it. All right? It is definitely worthwhile, though. And particularly since we are going to be there. The armies of heaven follow after Jesus Christ. We, too, are riding on white horses, even as he comes riding on his white horse. All right? So what is our role in this? What part do we play? You know, how much combat are we expected to achieve? Thankfully, as I read the scriptures, none, <laughs> very little. Uh, we are following, it seems as if he does all the combat himself. The sword proceeds from his mouth. And he's the one that achieves the victory. He's the one that receives the maximum glory. We are an honor guard in, in much respect in following after, in observing the victory that he himself personally achieves. All right. And if there's more to that, that that scripture doesn't really take us into, you know, are we, does each one of us get to bump a demon and and so forth? I don't find the text, but I'm still looking. All right. I'm still looking. Me personally, I I don't have much skill with horses. I'm going to be happy just to hold on. All right. I don't want to fall off and embarrass myself in front of everybody, Antichrist and everybody else. But this is a, a very valuable study, and Isaiah 63 is a big part of it, to observe the role that Edom plays. And the reason why, the twin brother of Israel. Remember Jacob and Esau? Esau is Edom. Edom is the twin brother. The Edom is the son of Abraham, son of Isaac. All right? But not Israel. Because Israel is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is Jacob that is renamed Israel. Edom is Israel's twin. But Edom is not Israel. Edom is not the object of the Abrahamic covenant as we study covenants this evening, all right? So uh, I list that for you there. Understand, no other Savior could accomplish either the Adamic sin redemption or Israel's national redemption. And this is where a lot of confusion creeps in. We've actually had a verse similar to this back in chapter 59, five weeks ago or more. There was a vacation tucked in there. But five chapters ago, there was a, uh, a reference here that no one could save, and so he did it himself. Do you recall that? In Isaiah 59, 16, uh, he saw that there was no man. He was astonished that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought salvation to him, and his righteousness upheld him. In, in today's chapter, it's his wrath that upholds him. In this chapter, it's his righteousness that upholds him. 
He put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. He wears armor that you and I aren't entitled to wear. In fact, we're, we're ordered not to take vengeance for ourselves. Vengeance belongs to him. We don't have the capacity to apply, to apply vengeance without going carnal on step one. According to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies. See, verse 20 of that chapter, a redeemer will come to Zion and those who turn from transgression in Jacob declares the Lord. And so the language is very similar in chapter 59 that comes back now and re-echoes in chapter 63. Just like the, the language from chapter uh, from the chapter 34 about Basra comes back again and is now re-echoed here in chapter 63. I believe Isaiah was a preacher that liked to review and liked to uh, bring things up again that he'd preached before. There's a value in uh, repetition, right? There's a value in repetition. I don't have time for a third one. All right. But he does what no one else can do. See, not only can no one, no one else can, no one else wants to. When it really comes down to it, who, even if they could, who would want to sacrificially lay down their life to, to save fallen man? I wouldn't do it. I absolutely wouldn't do it. I wouldn't even save me if I was God looking at me, the, the vilest offender who truly believes, right? As we sang that song, second verse, the vilest offender who truly believes. I want to raise my hand every time I sing that verse. And so here it is, Isaiah 63, 5. I looked and there was no one to help. I was astonished and there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought salvation to me and my wrath upheld me. So we've gone from righteousness now to wrath. And the tandem of these, I think, is, is, uh, is an amazing study that we can't get to today. But it is a sacrifice. You notice pouring out their lifeblood upon the earth. Remember the very first sin, the very, or not the first sin, but the first murder when Cain murdered Abel? And what was the effect of that? His blood was poured out on the earth and it was crying out from the earth to heaven. And the angel of the Lord testified to that when he spoke to Cain. He says, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And so now here is Jesus Christ coming and in his victory, he himself is shedding the blood that must be shed in his wrath. This is the righteous blood shedding to recompense all the unrighteous bloodshedding that has occurred from Abel till now. All right, more doctrine on that. But he talks about that, the, the every drop of righteous blood from Abel to Zechariah is how Jesus preached it in his first advent. But that concept now gets applied at second advent because there's a whole lot more unrighteous blood that has to be answered for. And here's where it gets answered. So he's going to pour out their lifeblood on the earth. This is the ultimate of the drink offerings. And not just taking a cup and pouring it out, but the very un, all the unrighteous bloodshed, all the innocent blood that's ever been shed. And now the wrath of God being poured out in judgment upon this earth. So there's a lot there. By the way, when you do more of these studies too, you're going to start to learn something. And you're going to start to learn that the Old Testament is using save in a different way than you and I would use it in our New Testament perspective. We're not talking about unbelievers believing in Jesus and having their sins forgiven. We're talking about a nation that has to be delivered from all the Gentile nations of the earth. 
and we're talking about the national sins of Israel being forgiven, primarily the sin of crucifying their Christ and rejecting their Messiah in first advent, but all of the national sins of Israel being forgiven, all of the national sins being atoned for and the blood of the cross applied to Israel as a nation. That's an entirely different realm of study than you and I and our personal salvation on, on the individual basis of faith. So pay attention to that as you work your way through. The call to this last great war comes in many forms. And uh, they're not popular. They're not on bumper stickers. They're the exact opposite. People want to go to Isaiah 2 or they want to go to Micah and they want to beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. But it's not time for that. That can only happen in the millennium. And prior to that happening in the millennium, the Scripture actually commands just the opposite. The Word of God commands, beat your uh, plowshares, beat your your pruning hooks into swords, and beat your plowshares into spears. Put in the sickle, tread the winepress. There's a lot of commands that are issued in uh, this last great war. Again, the introduction to Isaiah 63 comes in that earlier message of Isaiah 34 and um, verses 1 through 8 we already kind of touched on 5 and 6 but um, again it's a call to war draw near O nations to hear and listen O peoples let the earth and all that it contains here and the world and all that it springs from it For the Lord's indignation is against all the nations, his wrath against all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them. He has given them over to slaughter. Not just on the earth, but in the heavens as well. The fallen angels as well are objects of this warfare. I don't know how much time we'll spend in Joel 3, but Joel 3 is a a powerful parallel to to, uh, Isaiah 63. If you're not familiar with Joel... I recommend you get familiar with Joel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel. If you get to Amos and Obadiah, you've gone too far. But pay attention. Chapter 2, chapter 3, really the whole book. Understand the tribulational fulfillment of it. It's not the day of Pentecost and the beginning of the church age. All right, It's millennial in its scope. And you'll note um, it is a call to war. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare a war. Rouse the mighty men. Let all the soldiers draw near and let them come up. All right, I put that on a bumper sticker. Visualize world war. All right. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a mighty man. All right. Let the, let the invalid, you know, the blind and the lame, under the power of God, they're like, Rambo, <laughs> right? They're like Conan or what have you. Uh, let the weak say, I am a mighty man. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down, O Lord, your mighty ones. You see, it's almost a taunt. It's a mock. As, as Satan and Antichrist, they're gathering all the forces of, of the earth, all of the human beings. They're, they're indwelling 200 million of them with demons out of the abyss. They are preparing the, the mightiest army this world has ever seen to try to stop the second advent of Jesus Christ. And he's mocking them. He says, go ahead and gather them all together. That way they'll all be in one place. <laughs> all right. Go ahead, gather yourselves, bring it uh, there. 
Let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Shaphat is the Hebrew word for judge, and you have uh, Jehovah in front of that. So Yahweh will judge. Jehovah will judge. And Jehovah will judge in the valley of Jehovah will judge. Okay? Imagine that. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. See, it's, it's time to get those grapes off that vine. All right? And what do you do when you get the grapes off that vine? You start stomping them. Okay? Because you're not getting grapes off the vine to eat grapes. You're getting the grapes off the vine to press into the wine. This is the wine that he's drinking, the wine of his wrath. So put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, tread, for the wine press is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. As bad as you and I think it's getting in 2016 AD. Is that where we are, 2016? As bad as we think things are getting this year, just wait. All right? What is this world going to be like when restraint is lifted? When grace and mercy depart? When the body of Christ is raptured and there is no, uh, uh, there is no salt and light remaining on the planet? Well, the vats will start to overflow. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near the va- the, in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon grow dark. The stars lose their brightness. And the Lord roars from Zion, utters his voice from Jerusalem. He's not, uh, he's not uh, the, the quiet lamb that goes silently before its shearers. That was first advent. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah, and he is going to roar Remember, Aslan is not a safe lion. <laughs> okay? I love how C.S. Lewis described that. People today, they want a safe lion. They want a nice, comfortable God in their moralistic, therapeutic deism. No, the lion is going to roar. Revelation chapter 14 and Revelation chapter 19. A good uh, tandem of passages to relate here. Revelation 14, and in this book we got so many back and forth visions from heaven to earth, from heaven to earth, and so angels in heaven are dumping bowls out and and judgment happens on the earth, or they're reaping with a sickle, as it says, Uh, an angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the wine press was trodden outside the city, and blood came up from the wine press up to the horses' bridles for a distance of two hundred miles. That's a lot of blood. <laughs> that is a lot of blood. Okay. Just the geometry of that alone is staggering. Revelation nineteen fifteen. Again, the language of wine press and wrath. And us, by the way, in 1911, I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. He who sat on it is called faithful and true. In righteousness, he judges and wages war. The whole doctrine of just war is a biblical doctrine. His eyes are a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He's already received his church age rewards as you and I are looking forward to, including the new name. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. There we are. Write your name in there. Pick out uh, the horse you want to ride. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he 
may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. That's why I believe we are there to witness and we are there as the honor guard. I do not believe that we will engage in the combat operations. He doesn't need our help any more than he needs our help to save us. All right? But we watch the work that he does and we reap the benefit that he, uh, that he provides. So, that's my world peace message. Okay? And world peace is achieved when the enemy is dead. All right? And this has always been the case. And uh, these negotiated pieces and reasonable compromises with uh, those that want you dead leads to you being dead in uh, so many ways. And so now, we have set the stage for the rest of the book of Isaiah. These first six verses, and really the two chapters leading up to this, has now set the stage for 63, 64, 65, and chapter 66. The rest of the book comes in this final um, application. So, with Israel's watchmen on the walls, remember that? Chapter 62. And with the Lord treading the winepress of His wrath, what we've seen this morning in 63, 1-6, With Israel's watchmen on the walls and with the Lord treading the winepress of his wrath, the prophet Isaiah now composes four discourses. We're going to outline them for you. I'll give you the outline and we'll just take them one by one. Two of them are today in this chapter. Two of them are next week. The prophet Isaiah composes four discourses that prophetically depict the unfolding repentance of Israel during their coming tribulation. And so uh, we'll give you a structural outline then for the rest of Isaiah 53 and crossing into Isaiah 64 and really even crossing into chapter 65 and 66, which is the Lord's response to Isaiah's four uh, discourses. So this is uh, ready now to wrap the Bible all up. What a message. What a powerful message given 700 years before the birth of Christ, given uh, 150 years or 100 years before their Babylonian captivity. There's bigger things Israel has to worry about than a 70-year captivity in Babylon. That's going to kind of have center stage in the book of Jeremiah. But as far as the prophet Isaiah is concerned, he's looking ahead to tribulation and second advent and millennium and fullness of times, the new heavens and the new earth, which we see in chapter 65. He's got a much larger view. The whole Bible can be preached from Isaiah, chapters 1 through 66. All right, so let me just outline this for you, and we're not going to spend a ton of time on the the later portions, because that's next week and the week after. But in verses 7 through 14 here, having the Lord for their enemy reminds Israel of Moses, Joshua, and the Holy Spirit indwelled elders of the Exodus and conquest generations. You don't feel like you've got to learn that right now. I'm going to get back to that here in a moment. I'm just giving you the, the sections. So we're going to take verses 7 through 14 as a unit. And uh, we're going to cover that today. I'm not going to let you leave the room until we get through this. Verses 7 through 14. And we're going to find references to Moses. I think we're going to have references to Joshua. Not by name, but he is at Moses' right hand. We're going to find the Holy Spirit that was promised and the Holy Spirit that was present in the Old Testament. Joshua had a problem with that. And Moses said, what are you talking about? 
So uh, we're going to talk about that. This verses 7 through 14. And one thing that's going to, that Israel is going to hold on to in the tribulation <laughs> is that, hey, the God that brought Israel through the Red Sea is the God that's going to bring us through this. The same Yahweh Elohim that, that parted the Red Sea is the same Yahweh Elohim that's going to save us in the tribulation. And so they're going to think back to Moses. They're going to think back to Joshua. And, they're going to, and, and, and really, the names of Moses and Joshua that speak of the drawing out and speak of the salvation. That's what they're going to see in the, in the tribulation. They're going to be drawn out and they're going to be saved. All right? And it wasn't Moses that conquered. It was Joshua that conquered. That's why it's Jesus that conquers at Armageddon. Okay? So we're going to handle verses 7 through 14. Beyond that, verses 15 through 19... Seeing the Gentiles trample the sanctuary wakes Israel up to the tragedy that their patriarchs wouldn't recognize them. Verses 15 through 19. That also we're going to cover today before you leave. All right. Seeing the Gentiles trample the sanctuary. It's a wake-up call. It wakes up Israel to the tragedy that their patriarchs wouldn't recognize them. You talk about sadness. And I think we can relate to this. Because I don't believe our founding fathers would recognize us. I don't believe that, that Thomas Jefferson or John Adams or Patrick Henry or any of those guys, I think they would look at our generation and weep for the character we do not have, for the biblical convictions we do not have. And that's only on an earthly realm for a Gentile nation. Consider they're going to look back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they're going to realize Abraham is, the, is our father, but he wouldn't recognize us. And the great sadness of that recognition. We'll cover that here in just a few moments. Moving beyond. So those are two of Isaiah's discourses. And Isaiah is, is singing these. It's, it's, he's, he's singing these. He's writing these. He's composing these. These are of his composition 700 years before Christ prophetically looking forward to that day. But this will be the reality for the tribulational saints. Israel will come to the same realization that Isaiah came to in the content of these chapters. On into chapter 64, verses 1 through 7, the presence of the Lord is an issue of absolute righteousness. They're going to come to the stark, brutal recognition that God's righteousness is absolute and man's righteousness is menstrual rags, the filthy garment of Isaiah 64, all right? Verses 1 through 7. That every ounce of, of legalistic human righteousness we can ever produce, the best unregenerate human do-gooder to ever walk this earth has produced nothing of any value, of any merit, of any desirability to the Lord God. The, the greatest righteousness man can ever offer is filthy, nasty, disgusting, and God wants no part of it. Israel has to come to that conclusion. Isaiah came to it seven centuries before Christ. We, of course, preach it ourselves. Isaiah 64 has been in our Bible. But Israel will recognize this as a nation and the issues that apply there. We'll teach that next week. Verses 8 through 12, the potter and the clay. The potter and the clay, all right? That's why we got the hymn of the month we've got. Have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. 
Thou art the potter, and we are the clay. Okay, that's next week. We'll be, we'll be preaching that from Isaiah 64. It's the fourth of the discourses. Israel has to recognize that they are in the hands of the potter, and they were so wicked against their Christ. What did they do? They sold him for the potter's field. They sold him for 30 pieces of silver. They sold him at a, at a ridiculously low price. They valued him as worthless. But the, the clay in the hands of the potter are going to embrace the fact that the potter is sovereign. If he wants to, he can take that entire lump and put it back into a lump and make something entirely new out of it. And that's what he's got to do. That's what he's going to do with Israel. He's going to make them entirely new, but first he's got to, they've got to take their lumps. Okay, He's got to mold them into another lump again to fashion them into the, the glory of the second advent, the glory of the millennial kingdom. So we'll deal with potter and clay and the good pleasure of the Lord next week in Isaiah 64, verses 8 through 12. So these are the four discourses of Isaiah. And we'll take each one item by item, not as slow as I want to. All right, two today, two next week. Each one, though, is, is to the depths, let me tell you. Then the Lord answers. Oh, my goodness, then the Lord answers. That's chapter 65 and 66, the conclusion to this book. All right? The Lord's verbal response to Israel's tribulational prayers. It's his response to Isaiah, first of all, personally, because Isaiah has had all four of these realizations, and Isaiah is getting that answer back, and Isaiah is, is recording this response in the, in the canon, in the scriptures. But Israel will receive this answer, not only through the written scripture of Isaiah, but I believe through the prophetic ministry of Elijah, through the prophetic ministry of the two witnesses of Revelation chapter 11, through the, uh, uh, the angelic preaching that takes place, through the 144,000 Jewish evangelists, this message will come across. It is a multifaceted address that spans chapters 65 and 66. It is a multifaceted address that looks forward to the millennium and even beyond the millennium to the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. The very promise that you and I are looking forward to. Because it's, remember, it's according to his promise. We're looking to new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. You've heard that before. Where's that promise? Isaiah 65, that's right. The promise is here. The promise comes to the prophet Isaiah 700 years before uh, our Savior was on this earth. So there's the outline where we're going to take it this week and next and the week after and the week after because we've got four Sundays in, in February and we've got four more Sundays to, to wrap up Isaiah. 63, 64, 65, 66. Now, the Lord is their enemy. Did you catch that? What does it take to wake somebody up? <laughs> you know, uh, tramp, Gentiles trampling the temple is one thing, and we'll see that next. But a, a, wake, a wake-up call even more severe than that is the wake-up call when Yahweh is on the other side. When Yahweh is on the other side. Because Yahweh is supposed to be on their side. And all through the Old Testament history, no matter how much they rebelled, Yahweh was always on their side. When, he, when they finally repented, you know that roller coaster in Judges? And then they would finally repent, they would finally wake up. And who was always there? Yahweh Tzivayoth, the Lord God of hosts, who would always show up. He would lift up a judge, he would go deliver them. Again and again and again, he would deliver them. 
But in the tribulation, Yahweh actually stands at the head of Antichrist's army. Jehovah stands at the head of the Antichrist's army in the coming tribulation. And oh my goodness, you talk about a wake-up call. For those who have eyes to see, and they're looking across the battlefield, and there's Jesus on the other side. Can you imagine? Yeah, I imagine there's probably a sports metaphor there I could use when, when somebody changes teams and, and then you know you look across the field and now all of a sudden they're in a different uniform and now, ooh, okay. Had to have some kind of sports analogy today, didn't I? But the, um, I'm, I, you know, I like Cam Newton, why not? I, I figure he's going to have, he's going to have precious few Super Bowl opportunities in the Russell Wilson era anyway. So, you know, we'll give Cam this one. But imagine someone that's always been on your side, someone that's always fought for you, now he's over there. Would that wake you up? Well, it does. It wakes Israel up. And we see, let's look at these verses 7 and following. I shall make mention of the loving kindnesses of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us and the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which he has granted them according to his compassion, thankfully, not what we've earned and deserved, and according to the abundance of his loving kindnesses. For he said, For he said, surely they are my people, sons who will not deal falsely. So he became their Savior. In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his mercy he redeemed them, and he lifted them and carried them all the days of uh, of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore he turned himself to become their enemy. And he fought against them. Now that is such an extraordinary verse. All right, because that goes beyond anything he ever did in an Assyrian captivity or in the Babylonian captivity or anything he ever did with the the period of the judges or anything he ever did even in the Roman destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. There's a difference between handing them over and then actively joining the opposition and becoming the enemy on the other side. As tragic as that is. And by the way, you and I can do the same thing today. His friendship with the world is what? Is enmity against God. Here are you and I. We're bought by the blood of the Lamb. We are friends. We are family. We are sons. And then what do we do? We go form friendship with the world. And we put Jesus Christ again on an adversarial footing against us in the experiential outworking of our faith. It's a horrible, horrible circumstance. Well, this is where Israel is as a nation. Because they crucified their Christ, they rejected their Messiah, and even worse, they blasphemed the Holy Spirit by assigning the ministry of Jesus Christ to Beelzebub, to the works of Satan. And Jesus said, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven in this age or in the age to come. And he actually takes the side of Antichrist for the opening stages of the Armageddon campaign. The locust uh, swarming of of, uh, Joel chapter 2 is led by Yahweh himself. And we see that he reference here as he becomes the enemy. That's got to be a wake-up call. All right? So he became their enemy and he fought against them. 
Then his people remembered the days of old. In seeing Yahweh on the other side, Israel is humbled, repentant, and they recall, not only do they recall the history of Moses and the, and the rescue, but they recall the role of the Holy Spirit at that time. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Not just the tribes, not just the political leaders, the shepherds. Where is he who put his Holy Spirit in the midst of them? Who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses? I gotta say, that's not Joshua by name, but who was at his right hand and who followed after Moses departed? It was Joshua, it was Jesus. Joshua is just the Hebrew name for Jesus. Who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name. Moses parted the waters to get them out of Egypt. Joshua parted the waters to cross the Jordan and start conquering their land. Who led them through the depths like the horse in the wilderness they did not stumble. As the cattle which go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. Who led, was it Moses that gave them the rest or Joshua that gave them the rest? It was Joshua. And how did he do it? Did he go in there and negotiate with all those? Uh, no. He went in there and he killed them. Should have killed all of them and failed in many places. And the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. And it is that. It is their heritage. It is their past. That is what they cling to in the first stage of their national repentance when they see Yahweh on the other side of the battle lines. What an unbelievable thing to consider as Yahweh does this. When Israel rejected their Messiah, they grieved, they, they, I lost my why, they grieved and even blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Matthew chapter 12, verses 30 through 32. All right. And isn't it remarkable? Maybe I can save some time by not turning there. But maybe it's remarkable that that chapter is the hinge chapter. From that chapter onward, he no longer prepares his disciples for the kingdom of heaven being at hand. He starts preparing his disciples for the cross. He starts telling people, tell no one who I am. He starts commanding that they not tell of the healing miracles and don't tell anyone who did this. And he starts to give them parables, mystery parables of the kingdom comes in Matthew 13. Why is that? Because the kingdom is no longer at hand. The kingdom has been uh, has been given over to the mystery state that we're going to see tonight as we study the kingdom of God. Okay? Or no, that was last week. Last week we looked at the kingdom. Tonight's the covenants. All right. Systematic theology at 7.30. Okay? But the rejection in Matthew 12 is they assigned his miracles not to God the Father, but to Satan said, you're serving Satan. You're casting out demons by the power of demons, by the power of Bills above. And he gave them the, the, the most ferocious rebuke imaginable about an unpardonable sin. Well, here's what happens. They rejected him. And I think the description here is pretty vivid that uh, they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit Therefore, he turned himself to become their enemy. He fought against them. They rejected their Messiah. He ascended to his father's right hand. And when he comes, 
prior to his coming to save them, in the initial stages of the Armageddon campaign, he is on the other side. He goes before their armies. He goes before their armies. Yahweh became their enemy and will lead the armies against Israel during the tribulation. It won't be physical, it won't be bodily. Remember, he doesn't return bodily to the earth until he lands on the Mount of Olives and we're with him on the white horses. But as he sends forth his spirit, this is what we see. He goes against, uh, he leads those armies against Israel during the tribulation. He became their enemy. He fought against them. Joel chapter 2. I said we have a lot of connections here with Joel today. Joel chapter 2. By the way, I, I think we need to go with the early Joel, not the late Joel. We discussed that in the Minor Prophets, the argument about when uh, Joel should be dated. Did Isaiah have Joel available to him? One of them had the other one available to him. <laughs> and they both had the Holy Spirit, of course, as they spoke and wrote Scripture. When you look at this great, this powerful military... And these are described as locusts, and they never lose a battle. No one can stand before them. But you'll notice, before them the earth quakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon grow dark, the stars lose their brightness. The Lord utters His voice before His army. Surely His camp is very great, for strong is He who carries out His word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome, and who can endure it? Sometimes that verse gets read and songs get written as if that's good news. As if we, the good guys, are the Lord's army. As if, hey, we're going to win this war because the Lord utters His voice. He goes before His army. And they fail to see that the full context here in Joel 2 is actually these locusts that are coming to devastate everything in their path. And so even now, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me. With all your heart, with fasting, with weeping and mourning, rend your heart and not your garments. Even now, this better be a true repentance. It can't just be a phony show. It can't be just a mechanical legalism of 1 John 1, 9. This has to be a true rending of the heart. Who cares if you rip up your wardrobe? If your heart isn't rent, are you repentant? All right, and then same chapter down to verse 25. Um... Then I will make up to you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the creeping locust, the stripping locust, the gnawing locust, my great army, which I sent among you. It's uh, the forces of Antichrist that Yahweh himself, the spirit of Yahweh is driving and nothing can thwart it. Nothing at all can thwart it. All right. That's what they have to look forward to in the coming tribulation by the way this is his judgment upon his earthly people why would the church have any part in any of this it's unthinkable to try to blend israel and the church and try to shove a church application into any of these passages the holy spirit was uh, a big feature in in uh, the exodus although it wasn't understood it wasn't uh, stressed joshua himself had to hang up with it he was a little bit um miffed over a couple of fellows that had the Holy Spirit that uh, missed out on, on the occasion. 
arrived late and were prophesying inside the camp, and the young men didn't like it. And they got to Moses, uh, got to Joshua, and Joshua went to Moses. All right, Numbers chapter eleven. You say, who reads the book of Numbers? Right? I mean, come on. I read Genesis, but I skipped the passages that had all the numbers in it. The, the begat chapters and, and that. You can skip that. And then you read Exodus, and that's kind of a fun adventure story. And then you read, uh, and then Leviticus, you kind of give up on after a couple chapters. And then uh, you're thinking, well, when can we get back to the real cool stories again? And then you get to numbers, and you think, oh, no, I don't want any numbers. And so you just go right to Deuteronomy, and then you get some more stories, and, and you're fine for Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. So the point is, is I think a lot of times we skip Numbers, and it's sad because guess what? Numbers has some great stories. Numbers has Kadesh Barnea. Numbers has the, the 12 spies. Numbers has a talking donkey. Numbers has an awful lot of things. And you miss it if you just give up in the first few chapters with the numbers of the uh, tribes and the armies and the gathering and the camp and the order of things. But in Numbers chapter 11, we've got some pneumatology here. We better pay attention to Numbers 11. And Moses needs some help. And so they get the elders together. And uh, the, the Spirit's going to be poured out upon these elders. And then, um, but a couple of men don't make it. And, um, but then they start camp. They start prophesying anyway. These two men, uh, verse 26, two men had remained in the camp. The name of the one was Eldad. The name of the other was Medad. And the spirit rested upon them. Now they were among those who had been registered, but they had not gone out to the tent. So, you know, was God's plan thwarted because they let them down? No, they were registered. God intended for them to be among the spirit and dwelt elders. And they prophesied in the camp. So a young man ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. This is the first tattletale we have in the... Uh, not probably not the first. All right. And then Joshua, the son of Nun, the attendant of Moses from his youth. You want to learn how to be a leader? Get around a leader when you're young and watch him. Okay? He probably just set up the tent and unrolled the sleeping bag and, you know, kept the lamp filled with oil and dumped out the chamber pots. You know, think about the benefit of training and dumping out the chamber pots. The attendant of Moses from his youth said, Moses, my Lord, restrain them. But Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? Now look at his dream here. Moses is talking about, this is beyond my wildest dreams. Would that all of the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. Moses just dreamed about a day that might come that everybody had the Holy Spirit. You and I take that for granted in the church age because we got the Holy Spirit from the moment we got saved. And Moses was just drooling like that was the greatest thing you could even imagine. And actually, it remains still to this day a, prophet, a promise for millennial Israel. They will have the Spirit in the end times. Understand, this is Moses idealizing. And Moses' idealizing became a promise as the prophet Joel promises the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. All right. I don't have the time to run through that, but that, that was not a prophecy of the coming church on the day of Pentecost. Uh, that was, Peter wasn't saying that that was fulfilled when the church began. Peter was illustrating with that verse. That verse is fulfilled in the second advent of Jesus Christ. Verse 
And this temple gets trampled. What is it that provokes Israel to jealousy? You know, the ministry of Gentiles in the church provokes Israel to jealousy. But observing the Gentiles trample the holy place, that's an entirely different kind of provocation. That is a provocation to utter despair that all they can do then is cast themselves upon the Christ whom they crucified. <laughs> They've been waiting to build a temple since, since Titus, right? Since 70 A.D.? They've been waiting to build a temple. They've been, and, and the Muslims have had a mosque up there since the 6th century. And they've been waiting to build a temple. They're waiting to build a temple. They will get a chance to do so. But they're going to do so in unbelief. And Antichrist will defile it. It's going to become trampled by the Gentiles. Antichrist will put his own image in there. The false prophet will give life to that image that's in there. There's great sadness in, in store. Let's look at verses 15 through 19, Isaiah 63, 15 through 19. Look down from heaven and see from your holy and glorious habitation. Where are your zeal and your mighty deeds? The stirrings of your heart and your compassion are restrained toward me. In other words, Isaiah personally doesn't see it, but the nation's going to see it. For you are our father, though Abraham does not know us. And Israel does not recognize us. Remember, it's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jacob is renamed Israel. Though Abraham does not know us, and Israel does not recognize us. Isn't that powerful? I mean, the rich man and Lazarus, they die. And Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom. And the rich man's over there in torments. And Abraham at least recognizes who that rich man is. Knows what, he, what his life was like. Knows why he was in hell. Knows why all these things are going on. But Israel, Abraham does not know us. Israel does not recognize us. You, O Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer from of old is your name. Why, O Lord, do you cause us to stray from your ways and harden our heart from fearing you? Remember, Israel's under a hardening. He gave them over and he hardened them. The partial hardening of Israel as the church age was inaugurated. Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage, your holy people possessed your sanctuary for a little while. Our adversaries have trodden it down. And the reality is they built it for themselves and uh, the Lord didn't accept it. It was not in faith. Ezekiel's temple is what Yahweh will build and he'll do that himself. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who were not called by your name. We have become like illegitimate children that you don't even acknowledge. But we are yours. We are yours. All right, well, the prideful Jews in Jesus' day, <laughs> they thought that having Abraham for a forefather counted for something, right? They were all full of themselves. We're children of Abraham. We've never been slaved to anybody. As he said, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the things that are pleasing to him. Read through John chapter 8 sometime and you'll see that. From verse 33 all the way down to verse 44 and that, that surrounding area. But, under, but the humbled Jews of the tribulation are going to agree with Jesus that their behavior is not Abrahamic. <laughs> that Abraham wouldn't recognize us. Like our founding fathers wouldn't recognize us. This generation of Americans. All right. Jesus said, if you're Abraham's sons, then do the deeds of Abraham. 
But as it is, you're seeking to kill me. He said, this Abraham did not do. (laughs) All right. If you're sons of Abraham, do the deeds of Abraham. He says, you're of your father, the devil. That's why you're trying to kill me. He was a murderer from the beginning. He was a liar from the beginning. And the Jews of Jesus' day and first advent never got it. But in the the tribulation, it's going to wake them up. They're going to see the Gentiles trampling the holy place. And they're going to agree that the patriarchs wouldn't recognize them. Abraham and Isaac would not recognize them. Tribulational Israel will identify their partial hardening and they'll know the reason for it. They're going to know that God did that and they're going to ask God to undo it, to restore them. The whole doctrine in Romans 11, verses 7 through 10 just goes right with this. That a partial hardening has happened until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Psalm 69, also verses 22 and 23. When they observed the sanctuary of Yahweh trampled by the Gentiles, Jesus prophesied that in Luke 21, and it's spoken of in Revelation chapter 11. It's future, it's tribulational. All right, it's not Titus and the Romans in 70 AD, it is Antichrist and tribulation. As Jesus prophesied it in Luke 21 and then given to the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 11 and verse 2. Let me just uh, close with that. Look up Psalm 69. You're going to like that. Verses 22 and 23. And even back up to Isaiah 29. There was a a reference there in Isaiah 29.10. Let me close with Revelation chapter 11. There was given me a, a measuring rod, like a staff, and someone said, get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Leave out the court, which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations, or Gentiles, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. For 42 months. What's 42 months? Three and a half years. Time, times, and half a time. 1,260 days. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days. There it is. Clothed in sackcloth. Man, you think this is a deep chapter? Well, we'll come back next week. Chapter 64 is a shorter chapter. And um, we've already had the outline of it. We've seen how it got introduced here in uh, 63. But we've got to learn about righteousness. And we've got to learn about what eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor has entered into the heart of man. All that has been prepared for those who love him. Okay? Father, I thank you for your truth. I thank you for Isaiah. And Father, if our heads are spinning and and we're drinking from a fire hose here this morning, uh, just imagine, Father, what Isaiah was going through in seeing these things and giving forth this message observing you become Israel's enemy. Father, I just thank you that it's your plan that's unfolding and not ours, and that when we are faithless, you remain faithful, for you cannot deny yourself. You're faithful towards us. You're faithful towards Israel. There is never a time that you are not faithful, Father, and we thank you for that. Continue to bless these studies as we have three more weeks to to tie together the last of Isaiah and then get our first shot at, at Jeremiah. And Father, I pray that Austin Bible Church, I pray that all of the United States of America believers will start to pay attention to Isaiah and Jeremiah 
and prepared doctrinally for the, uh, the dark days that I believe are in front of our nation. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ, most precious and holy name. Amen.